1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 11th episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill, and today we have a very special episode related to our Big Library Read book. So, Adam, why don't you tell us a little bit more about Big Library Read?
2: Absolutely. So, Big Library Read is a program that Overdrive puts on Three to four times a year, where we work with publishers to make one title available to users all around the world without any wait lists or holds. So this time it's American Sniper, which was made famous by the best-selling book by Chris Kyle, as well as obviously the movie, which won a whole bunch of awards. And the way it works is you go to your library's Overdrive site and you can borrow the ebook and the audiobook uh, of this one for this instance. For two weeks, just like you would a normal title. The actual program is from March 17th through March 31st. And we kind of create a global ebook club around it. So it's a book club that everyone around the world can take part in as long as their library is participating in the big library read. If people go to BigLibraryRead.com, they can get some more information. You may have found this podcast at biglibrary.com. So if this is your first time listening in, thank you. Um, but there's a whole bunch of information on the program. Uh, there's a discussion board there. So if you want to share your thoughts on either this podcast or American Sniper, the book itself, um, you can do that at biglibrary.com.
1: Awesome. And who are you going to be interviewing on this episode related to the book? So
2: this episode, uh, I interviewed Taya Kyle who is the widow of Chris Kyle? who wrote American Sniper. Uh, Taya also wrote her own book, American Wife, and we had a really great conversation about her life as a military wife, um, her and Chris's experiences while he was overseas, when he came back home. Um, we talked about the foundation that uh, they started, and um, really just... She was able to give us some insight on the Chris Kyle that people might not be able to learn about when they read American Sniper or if you happen to have uh, seen the movie. So she was very gracious with her time and we absolutely appreciate her taking some time discussing some things that, of course, aren't the easiest things to deal with.
1: Oh, for sure. I think listening, having listened to the interview, I think it'll give great insight into American Sniper, the book. and. Um, Adds a lot of background information.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think my favorite part about it was her discussing why Chris decided to write the book. Mm -hmm. And um, just, you know, I don't want to kind of spoil it or anything like that, but just learning why he decided to share his story and then everything that surrounded that was really fascinating to me. So Again, if you go to biglibrary.com, not only can you borrow American Sniper from there, you can also get some reading recommendations uh, that align with American Sniper, including Taya's book, American Wife. So yeah, I hope everyone enjoys it, it was incredible to be able to speak with Taya, and again, we're... Very, very grateful that she was able to take some time and chat with us.
1: Agreed. And as always, you can find us on Facebook at Overdrive for Libraries and Twitter at OverdriveLibs. Yes. And you can email us at feedback at com if you have any comments related to this episode or any episode.
2: Yeah. All right. And with that, uh, I hope you guys enjoy this conversation that we have with Taya Kyle on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Adam from Team Overdrive, and today I'm very excited to have a very special episode of our Professional Book Nerds podcast for you. Today, I am joined by Taya Kyle, author of the New York Times best-selling title, American Wife, as well as widow of the U.S. Navy SEAL and author, Chris Kyle, who might be best known for his memoir, American Sniper, which was a number one New York Times bestselling title as well, and the source of Clint Eastwood's blockbuster movie, which was nominated for six Academy Awards. Uh, Taya, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us today.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: So I want to dive right into your story and, and Chris's story. A lot of people may know Chris now as the most lethal sniper in U.S. history with over... know 160 confirmed kills but you first met Chris as he was beginning his military career so can you share with our readers what inspired him to join the military and what ended up leading him to continually go back overseas and defend his country
0: growing up Chris had two dreams one was to be a cowboy and one was to be in the military and he was able to be a cowboy well into his 20s and then when he realized that it was probably time to go into the military or not do it he went ahead and signed up, and I think there's more information in American Sniper about how that all rolled out. But he ended up becoming a Navy SEAL, and he loved his service. He loved that sense of purpose that he had. And so he originally went to sniper school thinking it would make him a, a better hunter. He loved to hunt and all that. But then, of course, when the war kicked off, it turned out that they would need his skills more than anyone could have imagined, surely more than he did and the reason he did it for as long as he did and I think would have continued to do it until it was the end of him really was because he felt like if he wasn't out there and he was able-bodied that somebody else would have to be in his shoes and he knew that there was a price to be paid for what he was doing emotionally and he wanted to be the one to to take that on and always said too that he'd rather be known for the number of lives that he saved because that was what he saw his job as a, a protector for civilians who lived in the area for Allied Forces and for, of course, the U.S. military.
2: And so prior to making the decision to write American Sniper, did Chris ever speak with you about his experiences and his time overseas, or was that more something that he tended to keep to himself?
0: No, he talked about it when the mood felt right for him. So I think just like a lot of people who serve both in the police forces and in the military, It typically doesn't come out in one big stretch, but when they are ready to share bits and pieces, they do it. And I learned in time just to be patient and and let him talk when he felt like there was something he wanted to share and things could come out, whether we were just in a car driving and someone would bring up a memory or something that he wanted to share, he would. And I know that for a while, he was very selective in the times and places and people that he would open up to because he didn't know people would understand it's, until you've been there. I think there's a part of our mind in America that can't even comprehend how different parts of the world are and how savage the behavior can be. It's really disturbing when you when you learn more about it because it is so different than what we see in the United States where violence is concerned, the quality of life is concerned, the mentality of people in an oppressed community. It's all very, very
2: different. And then in regards to opening up and, and telling his story a little bit, um, I saw an interview where you, man- you mentioned a few years back that Chris really only wrote American Sniper because other people were planning on, on telling his story, and he wanted to make sure that proper credit was given to those that he served with. Um, would you mind sharing maybe what was going through your mind as he was writing the book, or were you ever concerned about the attention, both negative you know negative and positive, that this might bring chris and everyone that he did serve with
0: absolutely chris didn't want to write a book he was adamant about that and his life was so interesting even outside of the military that people felt that combination of his military service and the rest of his life really made what would be a a gripping story to read and he was adamant in not doing it he didn't feel that he wanted any attention certainly and his life was just something he lived he didn't do it for recognition it wasn't something that he felt other people needed to know or that he needed them to know. But over the years of people encouraging him to write a book and him saying no, it got to the point where other people were going to write a book about him and then he still didn't want to do it. And then when he started hearing people writing different chapters and it was going forward, he did think about those guys that he served with and he wanted to make sure they got the credit and that a book wasn't just about him. And he also was concerned that a book might glorify his experiences if people just focused on what he was recognized for, was sort of the legend that he had become. And so in writing his book, he felt like he could put his flaws on the table and make it more real and say, I'm not any different than anybody else that served. Maybe I had different opportunities and experiences, but this is a common story that is felt by anybody who served in any war. And certainly the guys that he loved dearly that were killed next to him and the guys that he would never know their names, but who lost their lives, he wanted their heroism recognized as well and he felt in doing a book he could do it that way. You know, he didn't want to keep any proceeds because I think he wanted it to be clear to people that this wasn't about him. And I feel like in doing it the way he did it and he and Jim DeFlees who wrote the book with him felt that it would be compelling and to tell the family side of it and that it would be an incomplete Version of his life. If we didn't include that, so I sort of reluctantly came into the mix as well because, like him, I didn't know what it all meant, and I didn't know honestly how important it was. Nor did I need the notoriety for it or anything else. It was just it was just our life, so it all seemed very odd. But I think what we've heard from people is that the family side of things is a story that people are hungry for, and again, it's not just our story; it's pretty much everybody's story, and it even. In a lot of ways, it's the story of a lot of first responders who are fighting the evil of this world that nobody knows about, and people don't even know, sometimes in our own country, the type of ugliness that exists, that these guys are putting themselves into those ugly situations to try to get justice and try to protect people, and they carry that weight with them. Home, their families have the same type of dynamic, too.
2: And then, speaking about you know Chris's story, and and obviously your side of this experience as well in in the book and they do a really good job of depicting this in the movie as well. Chris actually calls you called you from the the battlefield and would you mind sharing what those experiences were like just hearing the explosions in the background and you know having the the line go dead what what was going through your mind when you'd be having those conversations?
0: yeah, those are good questions I know it's definitely a different experience and some of those things where You can look back at wars past and say, we're so fortunate to be able to stay in contact with our loved ones instead of having to do the snail mail thing and wait months for a response. The flip side of that, like everything in life has its good and bad, the flip side of that is sometimes you get, you know, that instantaneous knowledge of the danger that they're in, too. And I'm not the only one, certainly, that's had that experience either. And it, it was a weird mix because Chris, being ultimately always protective, he wouldn't tell me necessarily, hey, look, I'm... Um, on a rooftop right now, or the things are, are a little hairy right now. As far as I knew, he was always calling from base. Mm-hmm. And so when I would hear things going on in the background, I could assume that maybe there was something going on right outside the walls, which happens very often. And then there were times, like you said, that something was going on right then and there. And the way I dealt with it was to say to myself, I know that he is in gunfights literally every single day on most of those deployments. Not all his deployments, but some of them. It was a, it was a daily occurrence. Mm-hmm. And so I would tell myself that the sound of gunfire didn't mean that he was going to be hurt. That's the logical side of it. The emotional side of it can be absolutely terrifying. And when the line goes dead, I think your mind goes to that worst case scenario and it's terrifying. At the same time, through the years, knowing that, that hearing gunfire, having the line go dead didn't mean that something was wrong. I trained myself to believe that he was fine until somebody told me differently. And I didn't do that easily, but that's the logical part of it. That's what I I did to make it okay. And then emotionally, you just have to try to keep getting stronger on that emotional side to not fall apart when it happens. And sometimes you do, sometimes you don't.
2: And then in regards to when Chris would be on duty and then when he would come back, in an interview I saw Chris once mentioned that you used to say he took off his cape when he came home from work and you know as a military wife can you describe for our readers what that transition was like both for for you and for Chris and for your family when he would come back from duty
0: yeah there was a, a period of time where for the first week or so our neighbors who were very close friends of ours all said that they understood that it might be a week before they'd see him because he would just kind of hole up in the house and and just heal and get some quiet time and process a little bit before he would go out and kind of go about his, his normal business so there was always that time and then there's a time where I think you're both trying to figure out that common ground again because there's the love is never any doubt and we talk about this I think in American Life and American Sniper that you have all this excitement of seeing that person you love that you've missed so much and yet at the same time when you see each other, you realize that there's a lot that's happened in the past six months, eight months, year, however long they've been gone, where your children have grown or you've changed as a parent or an individual. And they've certainly changed from the things that they've seen. And you have to focus on loving each other and knowing that that's solid and then just give it time to recalibrate a little bit and find, find your way. But it's in some ways it got to be a point where it was, it was normal because we knew we loved each other. So you know, it would happen in the first few times. It's a little bit disconcerting because you just hope that you're going to find your new normal and you believe you will. I think we're all optimistic when we're in love. And then there's that other side of you that you mentally just has to navigate it. And it's, it's not it's not always easy. But I think my excitement of having him home overrode everything else and it made it less difficult, I guess.
2: And so there were a few times that, that I saw he mentioned for him it was very much kind of like turning a switch on and off, you know, like between being overseas and and doing what he had to, to do to, to protect the people that he was serving with. Um, but was it more of instead of just having, you know, considering it a switch that you can turn on and off, which seems incredible, the mental strength he must have had and you must have had to deal with that. But was it more of kind of a transition when he would come home as opposed to, you know, I can't imagine it being just an instant, okay, I'm home. Everything is is back to normal.
0: Right, right. It's definitely not an instant switch. I think you learn to compartmentalize better, but you can't compartmentalize things that are really traumatic to the point where they don't seep into some area of your life. It's just not realistic, like you're saying. And so there is that part of both partners in the relationship not carrying or trying not to carry the damage or trauma with you but of course it does seep in a little bit and I, I can say that another challenge for military couples is that every deployment is different and every homecoming is different and so the things you're dealing with maybe they've compounded over time or maybe they're just just different and so you have to find a new way of getting back to something that seems familiar even though you know that something is changed forever at the same time and i've heard you know the longer chris was out of the military the more he got back to who he was i think that's very normal too that if you're in a service-related field where you're seeing evil and you're fighting it you can get back to normal after you get out too but you'll never be 100 percent the same as before i think it's more a matter of accessing the softness that you had all along and and recompartmentalizing the darkness because Chris isn't the only one to have said this either, that when you go into those kind of situations, you have to find some darkness in your, your soul mm-hmm. and access that in order to do the job without falling apart. You can't be as sensitive as you normally would be and continue on without breaking if, if you don't just find that darkness and, or that, I, maybe darkness isn't the right word, but it's, it's a word I think that says, look, I'm, I'm in the dark and I have to put up my defenses, my armor and not have the emotional reaction that any normal person would have. So it's that element that you have to try to work backward from after you've accessed it. And you know you're going to have to access it again when you go back. And so, yeah, you're right. It is a very hard thing to do. It takes a lot of mental strength, and that's probably why the divorce rate is through the roof for our first responders and our military couples.
2: And in regards to that darkness um, that you, you were mentioning that, that Chris would talk about, a lot of some of the neg- negativity that I've seen around American sniper tends to stem from people, I guess cringing over how straightforward Chris told the story in the book about dealing with, you know drawing the line between good and evil and and doing what has to be done to defend everyone that he's he's working, you know he's defending. And it, it seems that a lot of people out there, openly support the military, but they'd rather have those experiences kind of out of sight, out of mind. Um, I'm personally of the belief that in order to understand even just a fraction of what these men and women are going through, uh, especially when they return, we as you know, citizens who aren't doing what they're doing, we need to read their stories. Um, what would you say to people who would react or have reacted negatively to the way that Chris shared his experiences?
0: I think there's, it's a good question, and I think that I'm definitely of the same mind you are, and I, I love to live in the light more and to be positive and to not focus on negative and all of that, but I have found that it has been a really important part of my life to learn more about what these people experience, and there are images that I have in my mind from stories I've heard from even first responders who have seen some of the the ugliest behavior that I couldn't even wrap my head around, I wouldn't even want to know existed, but it is part of humanity and there is a part of this world that is evil and the crimes against children, the crimes against families that some people have no conscience of. And I think for people to understand and learn about it is important. And I I think the other part of that is to really try to get your head around it. I think people need to try the best they can to imagine what it would be like if someone in their neighborhood was killing or beating or harming the children in the neighborhood and you knew that and you saw them coming could you turn a blind eye if they were doing it to your family members could you turn a blind eye or at some point would you say i can't live with turning a blind eye i have to find a way to fight this and i think most of us would be so disturbed by the evil that we saw that we would say we have to find a way to fight it. And if they would go away with conversation, great. If they wouldn't go away with conversation, would you go to the lengths that you had to go to, to protect those children, those families, your family members, your brother, would you do that? And, if, and, and I think that's how you start to get to understand why these guys can do whatever it takes to protect. They're still within the rules of engagement. They're still not out provoking fights. They're still responding. To the evil that comes in, so I think when you can get in that mentality, it helps you better understand that at some point, you know, you almost have to think you wouldn't be right in the head if you didn't stand up and fight and find some darkness in yourself to to stop those people. And like I said, if they would stop with one punch to the face, great. If they wouldn't, and they were killing and maiming, what, what eventually could you do to protect other people around you? That's what the position they're in.
2: I think that's a really, really important way of thinking about that. And and when our readers do go through the pages of American Sniper, they are going to learn about, you know, Chris Kyle, the hero, and they're they're going to read in his own words about, you know, that darkness and the missions and battles and the sacrifice that he made for his country. But of course, that's only part of what defined him as a great man. Uh, would you mind sharing with us? maybe a little bit of the side of Chris that readers can learn about in your book, American wife, kind of the part that we didn't learn about in American sniper.
0: Yeah, definitely. And you know, I think the cool thing about this is while I was trying to show the parts of Chris that I didn't think maybe people knew and, and would love to know about him, the parts that I loved so much, I found in writing that book that there are so many people, guys who have read it, women who have read it, who have said, yeah, that's the way it is. These service people, man, they're, they're romantic. They're passionate. They have big feelings that they can express in, in ways that are very powerful to the people that they love. And so that, that passion that they have, that ability to put their heart sort of online, that self, the selflessness they have to have to take on the, the pain that they'll feel in, in doing those acts to protect other innocent people. That's the same heart that they bring home to the people they love. And so they love very passionately, usually There's an element of self-sacrificing at home, too, and and the tragedy of all of that is that the world is against them. The world is against them. When they have to get in those positions, it's against their marriage surviving. It's against their ability to love and to get whole and get healthy again, and that's, you know, all these reasons are are the reasons that, that we started the Chris House Frog Foundation because there are people, and we can get back to that later, but I'm just saying that there's a great need for helping those marriages because it's not easy that most of these guys have that, and Chris had a, a sense of humor. He was a, a parent, but a, a father that I think, gosh, I wish there were more of them that can not only be uh, strict as far as holding their kids to a high standard of of being a decent human being, having manners, contributing to society, all of that but then also to laugh and be silly and and wild with their kids and then to be loving and soft and hug and, and show them what it's like to have a man that, that can be adoring too. And not every father has all three of those things, but they can do all those so well. And that was something that I felt was really special and his ability to, to give to our marriage and to come back and to love me in a way that I knew I was loved. That's, I feel like that's a pretty spectacular human being to do all that. And that's, there are, you know, there are a great deal of service members who who have that ability. Of course, I'm biased, but man, I thought he did it better than anything I could have imagined.
2: Yeah. You actually uh, led kind of right into the next question I wanted to ask you is you know, a lot of people that do come back from serving and, and first responders as well, they deal with, you know, post-traumatic stress. So really the, their experience doesn't end when, you know, they come back from overseas or from you know the front lines. And it's something you know PTSD is something that people tend to deal with differently. And Chris seemed to really a be able to compartmentalize everything, but it appeared as if at least from the outside looking in that he was able to handle his stress by helping others deal with their issues. And that seems to have led to the Chris Kyle Frog Foundation. So would you mind explaining to our listeners, a bit about what the foundation is and, and what purpose it serves, because I just think it's so incredibly important for everyone to know about this.
0: Oh, I really appreciate that. And, and you're right, he, he did have an extraordinary ability to do all that, and he was able to do it very quickly when you think about the amount of time that it took him to kind of get back to that normal. And I think one of the important things is that while we are hearing a lot about PTSD, it's important for us to recognize that it is not a life sentence. It can be a temporary thing that you it most often is a temporary thing. If you're able to get some help and get back on track, it can be the life of that that PTSD component can be shortened by quite a bit. Um, the life of the PTSD, not the person. Sure. The person's life is lengthened. Um, and I think that people need to remember, too, that it's not an excuse for bad behavior. And it's the person who murdered my husband and his friend from what we learned in the trial, use it as an excuse for a lot of things, and the people around him enabled really him to make those bad decisions from what we saw, And and so the irony maybe in all of that is that the guy who killed Chris and Chad did not have PTSD. There's a psychiatrist on the prosecution side and the defense that testified to that fact. So it, it becomes a tricky issue because you don't wanna have people claiming it and then people around them enabling them to have bad behavior because first of all, we don't know if they have it like this guy. Secondly, even if you do have it, it's not an excuse for bad behavior, but it is a it is problematic and it can make you moody and it can make you lose sleep and it it can be a really big struggle for people to get through. But there's help and people need to be accountable for getting that help themselves and their their family members can be accountable. And and Chris Cal Frog Foundation, you're right, that is one of the things that um, that we're trying to help that getting back to a normal life. Now we don't specialize in PTSD at all, not not by any stretch of the imagination, but what we do is we work on the foundation because we've seen that when somebody has a loving home and a loving foundation to come home to, they fare far better and they can handle all the different stresses so much better. And so with the marriage and divorce rate being 80% and up for our first responder community and our military community, we feel that we can help these couples by keeping their foundation, their marriage strong. And in doing that, we can help generations to come because we would love to have that world be you can serve and not have everything around you crumble from your service. So you can not only survive your service, but thrive in your service. That's what we're doing with the, the marriages and the foundation. And like you said, that's definitely been a healing thing for me. And I'm inspired by Chris and his service. And I think no matter who you are and what kind of struggle you're going through in life, when when your own life seems really tough, if you can reach out and help somebody else's life get better, it's... Incredible! How much it helped you too.
2: And then, just because I, I want to make sure our, our listeners are aware, if they wanted to donate or give to the Chris Kyle Frog Foundation, where would they be able to do that?
0: Oh, I appreciate you asking. It's, you know, there's the website, the Chris Kyle Frog Foundation org. There's also all the social media things that you can imagine. You know, the <laughs> sure. Instagram, Twitter, you know, all those things. There's a Chris Kyle Frog Foundation page for that. And really, the other thing is to just helping a service member or a first responder by bringing whatever your gift is to the table. You know, if you, if you don't mind mowing a lawn, mow lawn. Don't ask, what can I do? If you ever need me, give me a call. That's nice, but honestly, they're in service related fields. They're probably not going to ask for help. They're mm-hmm. going to be too busy serving others. So doing things. If you're a good cook, cook them a meal. You know, somebody put some, some dollar store American flags in my yard one day anonymously on a, on a holiday and that meant the world to me. So notes, poems, just anything to say we appreciate you. I've been astounded at how much that means and you may not think it means very much to do a small gesture for one of our service members but I can tell you even the smallest of gestures can change a day an attitude it's really incredible so that's what I would encourage people to do too.
2: I think that is a very, very perfect sentiment in a great way like you said to help these people just doing small things here and there. Um, I just have a few more questions. Uh, One, what would you like our readers to know about Chris that they won't be able to learn from the pages of both American Sniper and your book, American Wife?
0: Uh, That's a great question. I think one of the things that we haven't been able to convey, because it's almost impossible in a movie or a book, just there isn't the time. Is He just had this incredible sense of humor where he laughed at the little things. I mean, just being silly. He had this youthful quality to him that was just enchanting. It was magnetic to be around. It was like no matter what he was going through, he was the guy that was just kind of pulling pranks on his friends and having them prank him back and silliness of, you know, anything. I mean, I could walk in front of the car and he could honk the horn. I mean, just (laughs) silly stuff like that, but he would howl with laughter because it was the funniest thing, you know, to him. And I think some of that youthful quality, maybe we lose that as adults and it was so amazing to be around and it lightened my life so much that he just had that that thing i mean like i said running around the house playing tickle games with the kids just seemed like in some ways he was never too tired to smile and to laugh and to find the simple joys and and i just admire that so much
2: and then just lastly is there any message or sentiment that you would like to give to families who might be dealing with really any of life's issues, whether they have servicemen and women in their family or not, just something to take away from, you know, American sniper and American wife, kind of a a message for them from you.
0: Well, I think the, the thing that I've learned is that marriage, adulthood, life with all the stresses and how fast it all goes, it can be so hard for all of us when really if we can simplify it a little bit. There's so much happiness that can come from it. So In the Bible, it says, put God first, put your marriage second, and your kids third. And in doing that, all of us survive. That's one thing I I notice is that you gotta have a long goal in mind and try to treat your marriage as if it was, you know, I I sometimes think if you were given one pair of shoes and that was the only pair of shoes you'd have for the rest of your life, wouldn't you take such good care of those shoes (laughs) and really make sure they were always in good condition and you would do whatever you had to do to make sure they were good, solid? I think... And that's the way we need to look at marriage is that this is supposed to be your one for the rest of your life. And so take better care of it rather than taking it for granted, that it's just going to be there. Take good care of it. So it's it's there for you for the rest of your life. And and on that note, what we can do for each other, I had a friend who told me once, I'm your friend, Taya, and I always love you and have your back, but I want you to know I'm also a friend to your marriage. And what that meant was when things got hard you know, we tend to sometimes want to take our friend's side and say, I don't know why you're putting up with that from him or her or whatever. Or, Man, I wouldn't do that. The difference in being a friend to marriage is to look at it objectively and try to help our friends see their marriage as a long-term thing and try to help them problem-solve for the long-term, not the short-term, to not give up on it because, you know, it can be such a beautiful foundation for people to have that solid marriage. And And I feel like if we can help each other out with that and put our focus back on that, we can help a lot of different things.
2: I think that is an absolutely... Perfect sentiment to end on. Taya, thank you so much for joining us today. We are incredibly appreciative.
0: Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your readers for taking the
1: time and interest in
2: it. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very much and have a fantastic day.
1: Thank you. God bless. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace.